We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, August 8th, 2022, as we bring you a new episode. So on Sunday, I participated in the White Sox 5K race at Guarantee Rate Field. I didn't die, and I didn't finish in last place, so great success. It was also a very successful day for the Chicago White Sox, as many of us were hanging out at Wings and Rings to watch an offensive explosion as the White Sox scored eight runs. It was a good Sunday. The problem is that the White Sox only scored 12 runs in the series, including just having two two hits, two hits the night before. They were able to split the four-game series, but it's another missed opportunity as both Minnesota and Cleveland, they also split their series, but against better teams. So here we are, a week later, and the White Sox have made no ground. Are they doing enough in the easiest stretch of the season? Will we see a series win in Kansas City this week? We'll address those questions as we move along in the show. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And Jim, let's get right into it. Why is this offense terrible? I don't know. <laughs> All right, excellent. Next topic. <laughs> yes. No, it's, uh, I mean, I don't know is, uh, is the answer for like how it got to be this bad. I mean, like the, we can describe symptoms, the ground balls, the lack of plate discipline, the opposite field homers drying up across the league and probably being felt more by the White Sox and, and just, you know, probably the way they're coached and also some of their natural tendencies rising to the surface and being wielded against them in a ways that the White Sox probably didn't envision when they were building this team with the way the ball, you know, doesn't carry. And then you throw in health problems as well. But uh, that's, it's all unsatisfying because we knew this all to a, a general extent to entering the season, just how, um, you know, vulnerable this team was to good right-handed pitching, but seeing like, okay, right-handed pitching handcuff the White Sox and seeing Yasmani Grandal having no lower body and seeing, you know, Yohan Moncada's bat speed seemingly shift from week to week. 
that's you know that's why I answer I don't know and and it's kind of serious that way and that I, I I don't know. Yeah, it's different when entering the season. We were concerned what happens when the White Sox face a Garrett Cole or a Justin Verlander or a Kevin Gaussman, right? The best right-handed pitchers in the American League. But you're right, Jim. When they can't hit Glenn Otto, who sounds like a lawyer in the Chicagoland area, who you would call if you're ever hurt in an accident or at work, when he handcuffs the Chicago White Sox, and we mentioned in the previous episode on how bad his slider was and how right-handed hitters were crushing his slider, and the White Sox couldn't do any damage. Old friend Dane Dunning had one of his best starts in his major league career against the White Sox, making it really simple. Here's a two-seamer, here's a slider, you can't hurt me. I'm with you that I think the answer is I don't know. We keep getting this question asked every time we're on 670 to score or we join other shows of what's going on with the White Sox offense. And I think that is the answer. I don't know why in the first three games of this series, they only scored four runs, Jim. Mm -hmm. Just awful. So there's two players that I want to point out that are bad right now and two players who are good. Just two. Just two. Okay. Let's start with Tim Anderson. So from April 8th, opening day, to May 26th, that's a 38-game span, Tim Anderson was worth 2.1 war, one of the league leaders in that category. He was hitting 363, 401 on base percentage, slugged 516. His weighted runs created plus was 164. Since May 27th, which is the Friday before Memorial Day, Spans 41 games. Tim Anderson is worth 0.1 war. He's hitting 246 with a 283 on base percentage and slugging 286 with mm-hmm. a 64 weighted runs created plus. That's a what 100% decrease from his first 38 games of the season. This is a hot take. So I'm warning everyone with this. Jim, I think it's time that Tim Anderson needs to drop down the order as a wake up call. Now, the Roos is not going to do it, but you cannot have this type of hitter bat leadoff. And if these were his actual season numbers, the White Sox would be made fun of by everyone. And why are you having such a poor hitter bat leadoff? And honestly, in the last 41 games, that is what Tim Anderson is, Jim. He's a poor hitter right now. Yeah, it feels a little bit like the Royals starting LCD's Escobar. Uh, in the leadoff spot for all yes. those years and uh, to bafflingly good results a couple of years and, and then you know, not so much other times, but, you know, it was part of like Ned Yost's uh, heat check, you know, batting Escobar first and saying like, we like the way it looks. And, you know, I'm looking at his numbers. Yeah, and it's pretty much LCD's Escobar. You know, in, in those two years, uh, I'm looking at uh, 2014 and 2015. Yeah, 270, 305, 348. So it's basically uh, Escobar with less slugging. Uh, is what Tim Anderson is doing right now. Escobar with less yeah. slugging. Let's hold on. Let's let's focus on that. Escobar with less slugging. No one mistaken Alcides Escobar as a slugging shortstop. Yes. So that's uh yeah that's an issue and, and you know it's tough talking about this because um you know all the you know rumors and 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 
you know, the, the, the social media uh, thing that flared up with, with Anderson and then him like, you know, deleting some accounts and going uh, dark and, and those regards, like it, it coincides with that. It also coincides with the, the groin injury and coming back. Like, you know, those two events are pretty much closely linked in terms of timetable. And so coming off the injured list, you know, the numbers you present are basically like, you can look at it in terms of, you know, he's still injured or he's not fully healthy or he's, hiding or not hiding. I should say like he's, he's protecting uh, an injury or protecting a body part that got injured and he's not playing like his full self. But, you know, beyond that, there's also been like, you know, we had this discussion on the Sox machine uh, comments uh, talking about how, you know, Anderson is also just, it's been strangely muted around him. Like he's kind of disappeared as a public facing media facing figure. Uh, he had the suspension and basically his comment was, I don't want to talk about the suspension. Like even his all-star appearance was a little bit weird. Just, you know, it wasn't the celebration that I think, you know, it normally would have been. So it's, it's weird. Well, also I wondered, you know, the last swing he took or like the last at bat he had, he kind of was looking at his hand uh, in between swings, thinking, you know, not quite a Hammett uh, injury, but all like kind of looking at like one of his knuckles, uh, you know, between swings. And then like he hit a chopper to the third base side and, uh, you know, he, he missed beating it out by a fraction of a step. And so he's standing on first base uh, with Daryl Boston awaiting the result of the challenge. And he was looking at his hand, checking it out. And so when, you know, Lenin Sosa came up, uh, as a replacement before it was announced that Anderson was serving a suspension. I wondered like, oh, is his hand uh, bothering him a little bit? And is that leading into the suspension? So, you know, that could be another thing. You know, if it was already the groin injury that was holding him back, you know, is the hand going to be a complicating factor? And if so, you know, maybe, you know, the, the confluence of injuries and everything else might be enough to convince Larusa to send him down, especially like if Luis Robert looks okay, if, you know, AJ Pollock had a nice little game at the top of the order with 300 mile per hour line drives. So there are candidates. Yeah, they don't, the White Sox don't have any perfect leadoff candidates. You know, Anderson is an imperfect leadoff candidate, but it works when he's batting 330. But when he when he's posting a 280 OBP with no power, uh, yeah, that, that is Alcides Escobar. That, that's like lesser uh, Alcides Escobar. Like that's not even, you know, the, the World Series form that was you know, very flawed. This is, uh, you know, the, the Royals not making the postseason version of Alcides Escobar. Yeah, it's, you know, he's not helping. And so I, I agree with you that, you know, looking at it and seeing Anderson being plugged in automatically and, and now seeing Robert back and swinging the bat okay, like there are options to hit in front of Jose Abreu and Eloy Jimenez. And yeah, I wouldn't mind seeing LaRusse indulge him. I don't think that's a hot take at all. See, it's just that with Robert hitting as well as he has, he's he's right now batting with one out when he's batting in the first inning, Jim. Like there's it's like an automatic out. And it's so weird to say this is the American League starting all-star shortstop. He was playing at a all-star dark horse MVP level to start the season in the first 38 games of the year. But we're talking about an almost zero war starting shortstop for the White Sox. Like, Tim Anderson, since Memorial Day weekend, folks, is replacement level. And that is a very heavy weight. I don't know what he needs to do to fix that, but he's got to figure something out. When Anderson was out and Mendick was filling in before Mendick got hurt, like, Mendick kept the pace, uh, I think, more or less for what Anderson was doing, or at least like a... A, a credible replacement. And now, you know, Anderson isn't even keeping pace with that. Like if Danny Mendick were healthy, uh, I'd be curious how much playing time he'd be getting. Mm, that's, that is a good point. I mean, yeah, Tim Anderson's hitting more like Lurie Garcia 
And that's a pretty good slash slide for Louis Garcia, actually, in the last 41 games for Tim Anderson. So that is, I think, what's ailing the offense. The other part that's ailing the offense, Yoan Makata. And with the lack of left-handed hitters, and this is something that Steve Stone always brings up in the broadcast with the struggles that both Yoan Makata and Yasmani Grandal are having, that the White Sox really can't handle it because they don't have a lot of left-handed bats, and these guys are the ones being counted on to generate offense from the left side of the plate. In the last 48 games, he's got three homers and 25 RBIs. He's hitting 225 with a 292 on pace percentage and slugging 343. That's good enough for an 81 weighted, weighted runs created plus. His defense, Makata's defense, is carrying his 0.6 war during this stretch. And against Texas, he was 2 for 11 with seven strikeouts. And the strikeout lookings are coming back. And there is one strikeout looking, Jim, in which uh, Len Casper on Sunday asked Steve Stone what Makata was looking for in 0-2. And he saw a fastball go down the plate. And Stone said, a ball. And I even made this comment on Twitter that Yoan Makata is back to just guessing at the plate rather than reading and reacting to the pitch that's coming out of the pitcher's hand. And I think that's what's contributing to a lot of strike three calls for him. I want to believe in Makata, Jim. Mm -hmm. When he's hot, it's easy to believe in him, easy to think that he's turning the corner. When he is cold, it's easy to get off the Yoan Makata bandwagon. And I just feel like Makata the hitter, not defensively. Makata defensively is fantastic. But Makata the hitter is testing my faith. Yeah, it's. I think with Makata, your eyes don't deceive you in terms of just like when he looks dangerous, even when the results aren't there, you see some things you want to see. You see like the, the line drives. You see, we, we talked about it before, like when Makata gets a hold of one, you see him like reflexively grab his helmet as though like the impact from the ball like rattled everything around the stadium and he needs to make sure that his helmet doesn't fly off immediately. Um, you know, you see the, uh, you're kind of the torque in his swing. You, you see the little bit of a recoil as he you know spins out of the box just because the bat speed and, and the uh, aggressiveness behind the swing is forcing him to, you know, his momentum to turn all the way around. And and so when you watch him in that mode, uh, sometimes not successful, sometimes he swings and misses or guesses, but at least you, you think like he has a plan and he's also, you know, fully healthy. You know, we, we talked about it and speculated because he couldn't really only speculate about it, but you know, the, the way his offense and, and his form has been really hit or miss ever since, you know, his bout with COVID that just, you know, we've, we've had to talk about this a lot and had to look at Mankata very closely, very often because it's, you don't know what you're getting series to series or, you know, not even month to month, series to series is basically how we're talking about him. And yeah, it's, you know, there's a, there's a good question in PO Sox later. I won't want to spoil, but it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know how long the White Sox can wrestle with this when making plans because um you know it's been very disruptive to just how this lineup is built like i think ideally moncado would be batting second in this lineup like tim anderson would be batting first moncado would be batting second moncado mm-hmm. can take pitches and allow anderson to run he can uh you know damage right-handed pitching right off the top you know facing a good right-handed pitcher even if he's facing a lefty you know when he's in peak form like he was starting to learn how to hit lefties so he was fine there too but he could even bat him like sixth and take advantage of the occasional homer but you know there are ways to use him against you know yeah no yeah no matter the pitcher there's a way to play him but you know just with his form looking so 
erratic and, you know, wondering if there's some injury that he's holding back on because, you know, for all of Moncada's injuries and, 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 and kind of grimaces and winces and how you watch him run, you watch him, you know, do something in the field and think like, oh, he's hurt again. Like he's played a lot of games. Like he had the, uh, injured list stint to start the year. So he, you know, he missed the first couple months, but like when he plays, he generally toughs through a lot or you get the sense that he's toughing through a lot. But at this point, like there's, you know, last year he was useful in that because he was slightly above average as a, as a hitter and drew some walks and, and, you know, ran the bases well enough and could produce, you know, with defense, he was fine. But, you know, we talked about it before, like there's a small stretch where he was Connor Gillespie with defense and that's okay. But, you know, counter Gillespie defense is not something you plan a lineup around. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, this is a problem right now, but it's also a problem going forward because he's still on the hook for quite a bit of money. Yeah, you don't pay counter Gillespie with defense two years, $41 million. Yeah, with a, with a sizable buyout. Yeah. <laughs> afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what Mikata's owed with the Chicago White Sox. So that's the left side of the infield that is in the bad category right now. And watch, they get hot against the Royals, and I really hope so, but the White Sox need more from Tim Anderson and Yohan Makata. But let's be balanced here. Let's talk about the good. Aloy Jimenez, Jim, is looking good at the plate. Like, we talked about it before the series. We knew August Abreu was coming. Could August Aloy be a thing? And 22 games off the injured list, uh, Aloy Jimenez has five homers, 14 RBIs. He's hitting 308. With a 345 on base percentage, slugging 526. He's got a 147 weighted runs created plus. Uh, against Texas, he was 4 for 16. He had, a, he had a home run to help support Dylan Cease. And he's been batting third lately. Is this going to be his lineup home for the rest of 2022, Jim? I think as long as he's healthy, uh, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, watching him reminds me a little bit of watching Paul Konerko in terms of you can scout him a little bit by his results. And like when Konerko was off, he just hit a lot of grounders to the left side. You know, you can, you can picture the Eeyore uh, head slump, you know, as soon as he uh, hit a grounder, drops the bat, head sinks, and he just kind of uh, starts plodding off to first base. But when he was, you know, in the zone, when he was seeing everything really well, just like his takes were good. Uh, his, his swings were under control. He had a few different swings to deploy and he looked impossible to solve. Like, you know, you just hope that he hit the ball on the ground and, you know, cause he couldn't beat anything out. But if he got the ball in the air, like it seemed to find holes more often than not. And, and, you know, Jimenez is reminding me of that right now. I think, you know, you've mentioned that he's the most likely White Sox uh, player of this current group to hit 50 homers in a season. I don't think he's quite there yet just because I think, you know, he doesn't, you know, he, it's more of a line drive swing than like a, a loft optimized swing. Mm. And, and so watching him hit, like he's like, I, I like where the line drives are going. Like they're, he's getting them off the ground, ball and air, but it's not like, you know, it's, it's, he's not selling out for launch angle. It's just, he, it looks like the kind of mode that he showed in Birmingham and Charlotte when he was making those parks look really small, just against lesser pitch. Like he's facing better pitching now. So he's not going to hit 430 foot opposite field homers the way he uh, demoralized the Southern league and, and, and the international league. But the, the kind of swing is there to where like, Oh, you know, he's now just uh, taking balls, you know, two inches off the plate and hitting them, you know, hundred miles per hour to the right center gap. Like he's, uh, you know, he's taking a pitch inside, uh, three pitches inside. He's getting jammed, but he has enough strength to muscle over the shortstop. Like he can cover 
a, a really wide plate. And that's, I think, what makes him dangerous. He's not going to be like a, a an 80-walk guy on sheer plate discipline alone, but his strength was supposed to be you know, covering both edges of the plate up and down, you know, all four quadrants, basically, aside from, you know, maybe the, the best pitchers in the world can get him out, but against ordinary pitching, like he should be able to beat them uh, when, even when they execute pretty good pitches. And that's what he's doing right now. And so that's really heartening to see. And he's not running great. So I know he's not a hundred percent. Like there's some opportunities where his singles could be doubles, mm-hmm. but you could tell that he is not running at a hundred percent right now whether you're watching on TV or you're at the stadium, he's not going full go down the first baseline when he is putting balls in play right now. Uh, So he's trying to be protective of the lower half uh, so he doesn't fall back to the injured list. But he's looking good right now. He's making great contact for the White Sox, and, and I'm hoping this continues. Luis Robert is also in the good category. In the three games back off the IL, he went three for 12 with two walks, two strikeouts, and two RBIs. And he only played three games because he had the Saturday game off. Sunday, he had two missile line drives that were just bad, batted ball luck, and they were caught out for Luis Robert. So even though he went three for 12, and you may look at that and say that's not very impressive, when you're looking at the batted ball data, it's very impressive. He could have gone five for 12, six for 12, in this series with with better luck. And it just seems like, I mean, Robert was hitting really well, Jim, when we saw him in Minneapolis and towards the last week before going to the All-Star break. And it just seems like since he has returned to the White Sox, he hasn't missed a beat. Yeah, it, it's that, that was my concern is that, um, well, I guess it was my concern, but it was also just how vague his symptoms were and how they were describing it. I was really hoping Rick Hahn was right in saying that, you know, it wasn't really affecting him in the plate as it was his uh, ability in the field. And that's how it graded out in terms of results. But I just really hope that nothing would disrupt that because, you know, as we've seen, the White Sox can kind of work around his defense in the outfield. Like if he's in center, at least, you know, that might mean that Adam Angles and right. And so he doesn't need to cover all the ground that he has to cover when it's like Gavin Sheets and Andrew Vaughn out there. But yeah, the timing is pretty good. Like I think, you know, if anything, just, he might be a little bit too anxious again. Just the double that he hit was a, um, you know, kind of a gift just because, uh, you know, he, he swung at two pitches out of the zone. Like he was, he had a runner in third trying to drive in. First two pitches were like, you know, five inches out the plate. He swung at both of them, swung through one, fouled the other one back, got into an 0-2 hole. And then uh, was Spencer Howard, um, you know, leaves the 0-2 pitch right over the heart of the plate, fastball, trying to get it inside and, you know, expand the plate that way, but just left over the plate and Robert smokes it. So uh, that was a case where like the, you know, his plate discipline could have done him in, but, you know, thankfully he was facing one of those ordinary, you know, I would say pedestrian right-handed pitchers the White Sox have struggled against and he produced. So, need to see more of that and you know it's it's good to see that you know even if he might be a little bit antsy or um exploitable to just you know expanding his zone too much the when he when the barrel gets there the the barrel seems like it's on time yeah he his swing looks like he's on time so looking at robert's last 120 at bats this covers his last 30 games of course there's some time missed because he missed weeks with being lightheaded and the blurry vision in his last 120 at-bats, Jim, Robert is hitting 325 with a 359 on base percentage and slugging 550. That's a 909 OPS. And he's got six homers and 32 RBI. So uh, when you look at the film of the last 30 games that Robert has played, 
I mean, there was that stretch of the season where Robert was just inconsistent. He would have a good game, and then he would disappear for three games. And we were all wondering, hey, where is the MVP candidate version of Luis Robert? Because we were hoping that 2022 was going to be his breakout season. In his last 120 at-bats, it's not quite MVP level, but a 909 OPS, yes, the White Sox offense desperately needs more Luis Robert. Yeah, it would be MVP level if you're playing his gold glove caliber defense, but right now he's been a little bit of a sneaky liability in center. Yeah, we know he's better than that, so it's it's still worth playing him. But yeah, the defense is not supporting him right now. But if he had that kind of gold glove uh, effort with a 909 OPS, that gets him close to MVP level over the course of a full season. Like that's premium position played in a premium fashion. That's, uh, that's what he gives you. So he's not quite there, but hopefully, you know, this... Whatever um, it was affecting his depth perception, um, hopefully, you know, that that is behind him and that every, his whole game starts to shape up. I mean, I would take average defense at this point uh, versus the really confusing reads on the warning track, which, you know, hurt uh, the White Sox as much as like a uh, substandard Andrew Vaughn effort hurts them. Yeah, that's true. And we know that Andrew Vaughn is one of the worst uh, outfielders defensively in, in Major League Baseball. But he did hit a home run, though. Yeah, speaking of which, I was going to say, like, yeah, I, I didn't know who you're going to mention as your two hitters. Like, uh, since you didn't mention him, I will mention Andrew Vaughn. Um, just want to mention that he's played every game in August so far, playing in the field every game so far, and he's, you know, getting some lift, hitting some balls well. So uh, I'm hoping that whatever, you know, the, the you know, the leg issue that uh, I know, you know, uh, Dan Bernstein and Lawrence Holmes like to make fun of, like, is that behind him? Like, it, it, it looks like it might be. Like, he's getting lift on his line drives. We're not seeing, like, the bat slams or, like, uh, the frustration of him not getting uh, the ball in the air or not, you know, scoring it up like he knows he can. So I'm holding out hope that he could be, you know, past whatever was plaguing him. Oh, that's a good point. And so you're looking at the outfield, the the outfield offensively. Yes, we know their faults defensively. But if Jimenez, Robert, and Vaughn can hit, then maybe we won't see three-game stretches where the White Sox only score four runs. But we might (laughs) if we still see Tim Anderson playing at this level and we still see Yohan Makata struggling. I think that means Andrew Vaughn, everyday second baseman. Well, there you go. That's the solution. That's the solution. Hey, Mike Vistakis played second base, Jim. Yes. I see Max Muncy playing all over the infield for the Dodgers. If bigger guys can do it, so can Andrew Vaughn, man. (laughs) I like it. All right, so that's the sputtering offense. So balance there, too bad, too good. Let's see how they do against the Kansas City Royals this week, but really need the guys that are underperforming to pick it up. Someone that is having a fantastic season, but maybe a historical season now, is Dylan Cease, Jim. So in his last start, the good. He went six innings. He only allowed two hits and one earned run. That's good. The three walks, not great for his Cy Young resume. We went into detail in our previous episode. If Dylan Cease wants to win the Cy Young in 2022, he needs to cut down on his walks. But his season ERA is 1.98. And with, when it went below two, Jim, I was just curious, what's the lowest starting pitcher ERA for the White Sox? And I don't want to go like all time because you get some really weird numbers in like the 19 teens and then like 30s and 40s pre-integration era. So I went back to 1969 when they changed the mount, the divisional era to today. 
And the lowest ERA by a White Sox starting pitcher is Wilbur Wood in 1971. He made 42 starts, uh, and he pitched 334 innings. They're, they don't make them like they used to. Uh, and he had a 1.91 ERA. So that's the lowest by a White Sox starting pitcher since 1969. The second lowest is Dylan Cease currently at 1.98. So he's got a shot, Jim, of posting the best starting pitching ERA for the White Sox since 1969. Do you think he can do it? I'm surprisingly optimistic. Like, you know, just watching him pitch, watching him, you know, mix in sliders uh, and, and with abandon basically and throw it as much as he wants to, like, hasn't hurt him yet. And, and you know, we talked about wanting to see him throw six innings more and, 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 you know, have the ability to throw seven innings more. He's doing that. Like Tony La Russa pulled him after six, but that's because he had his winning bullpen lined up. He could have, you know, started cease in the seventh and nobody would have batted an eye. Wouldn't have been a bad call. Cause he, when he finished that game retiring the last 13. So, you know, it wouldn't have been a bad call for him to start the seventh, but you know, thinking he had it under control and everybody rested, he wanted to, you know, establish the routine and Joe Kelly, Kendall Graven and Liam Hendricks got the game over the finish line. So, uh, the, the efficiency is shaping up. Um, the other thing that, you know, makes me a little bit more optimistic about cease than maybe anybody else, uh, in this rotation is just that he's done it before, like watching him establish his durability. Like last year, he did make every start, made 32 starts, led the, uh, majors or tied for the, the American league lead and starts made. He only threw 165 innings. So the in-start dur- durability wasn't there, but if he's, you know, right now he's on pace to make the same amount of starts. He could even probably make a 33rd start if the White Sox needed it over the final series of the season. They'd probably arrange it as such, but, you know, that puts him on a like 180, 185 inning pace, which is, you know, not, you know, what we were used to, uh, like even like a decade ago when, you know, Mark Burley and John Danks and such were throwing, you know, 210, 220 innings, Jose Quintana throwing 200 innings, Chris Sale throwing 220 innings. Like he's not quite there, but if you kind of seed or, or if you treat like 200 innings as like super special and most guys aren't going to do it. And really the, the biggest number for durability is starts made. And if Cease is leading the league and starts made while maintaining this effectiveness, then yeah, it's, it seems like he could keep doing it. Like if you're a Lucas Giolito, if you're Lance Lynn, just with some kind of injury history in the past or various body parts that tend to fail them, I would say probably not. I would think there's something holding him back. In this case, like, you know, maybe just the only reason I'm saying probably not is when you're talking about ERA, all it takes is one bad start for the dream to be over. So that's, you know, the, the odds are against it, but in terms of just like what he's showing and what he's doing, I can't think of one specific reason why it wouldn't work. It's just more of an odds thing to me, like, you know, placing money on just him avoiding that uh, landmine start that just ruins his numbers for a month. So looking at the podcast era, because Jim and I have been podcasting about the White Sox for nine seasons, 2014, Chris Sale had a 2.17 ERA, 2021, Carlos Rodon had a 2.37 ERA. So we got a chance here, folks, to be witnessing the best White Sox starting pitching season of our lifetime. Cease is just 108 strikeouts away from tying Chris Sale's franchise record of 274 set in 2015. So I know you said that maybe Cease gets to 13 more starts. Let's, if I was conservative here and say that he only has a, I would say 11, 11 more starts. More starts. He's got 22, I think he can get to 33. Okay, got so it. 11 more so starts. With 11 more starts, 
he'll need to average like nine to 10 strikeouts per start to, to catch Chris sale. Very tall order. The second most strikeouts in white Sox single season history is Chris sale having 233 strikeouts in 2016. And all cease needs to do is average around six strikeouts per start to, to be second all time. So when you, when you factor it in like Wilbur Wood having all of those innings pitched and all of those starts, did not have the amount of strikeouts that Chris Sale had. And we know that 2014 through 2016 is maybe the best three-year stretch of any White Sox starting pitcher in franchise history. And here's Dylan Cease, which we know he's been very good. We've been talking about his Cy Young chances. He won Pitcher of the Month in the American League in June and July. And I go to Stathead, and it dawns on me, Jim, he's got a shot. Dylan Cease has a realistic shot of posting the best season since 1969 for any White Sox starting pitcher. Yeah, it's uh, I think per start dominance is what we're going to be talking about, because I think it's it's really hard to like compare him to somebody like Wilbur Wood. It is. Um, you know, when you're talking even like I'm thinking like Mark Burley era, like you were talking about like you know, a 40 to 50 inning difference like that's. It's hard to make up and hard to assess the value, but like Mark Burley pitching now, like I don't think he would be a 200 inning guy. Like maybe he would be, like maybe 200 innings, but not like 220, 230, 240, you know, like in that era. Like that's, that might be past. But, you know, when it comes to Cease, like one of the things that's interesting about him as of late is like the strikeouts haven't quite been there. Um, but it hasn't been a problem just because, like in his case, like sometimes lower strikeout totals are welcome because that means he's, uh, you know, he's still not getting hit hard. So it's like, you know, foul balls being caught or just, you know, weak, uh, you know, bouncers to the left side on, on sliders. They're not squaring up. So like, you know, last three starts, he struck out 16 batters over 18 innings, but still the ERA is one. <laughs> you have two earned runs over 18 innings. Like that's, that's fine. So, um, you know, when it comes to the strikeout total, I think he's going to come up like, you know, he's, he's not going to come close to the pace he needs to, to catch sale. But, you know, when it comes to the other things like innings totals and, you know, whip and, you know, cause that's the you know, one number that's kind of hurting him is that walk rate. Uh, you know, that could be coming down. That could help his FIP. That could help his, uh, um, you know, the, the, you know, wins above replacement, which tends to, you know, count more of, um, you know, especially like fan graphs, uh, which, which doesn't really pay attention to runs allowed as much as pays attention, attention to components. Like, if that walk rate keeps coming down and he doesn't get in these protracted at bats and, and they end sooner uh, because they're weak batted balls put into play, like it could be a different, like his, his end of season stat line could have a slightly different form of dominance uh, just with the lower ERA, lower strikeout rate. But if the innings gets close to like 190, uh, then yeah, that's, that's definitely closer to anything like, you know, sale and, uh, you know, Burley and like Esteban Loaiza and like all the great, uh, near Cy Young, uh, performances that you know, the White Sox pitchers have produced, um, like 190 gets them yeah, a lot closer to being able to compare him to like the previous great starting pitching seasons the White Sox have had. Yeah. I just, I know he had a great season. I did not know that we are on the, yeah approaching a historical season for Dylan Cease when ranking like all time seasons for White Sox starting pitchers in this franchise, especially since 1969. Five runs over his last nine starts. Yeah. Just fantastic. Fantastic. And that's why watching this offense, especially when Dylan Cease is starting 
is so aggravating, Jim. Like, he doesn't need that much support. Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just score four runs, please. Just score four runs. That's why Tim Anderson and Yohan Mikado need to pick it up and Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert to continue hitting like they have. And with August Abreu, hopefully this White Sox offense performs a lot better this upcoming series against Kansas City. But it's cool that he made, you know, one thing that's satisfying, though, just a, a kind of a final note and cease is like, uh, as frustrating as it is to not see the White Sox get like four runs and make it easier, like it is cool like that you can leverage him to win a two-to-one game. Like that's... Yeah. At least, you know, you're counting on him uh, or you're turning to him to win that kind of game versus like Michael Kopech, you know, and, 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 you know, Kopech's doing what he can, but he's not quite there yet. The way that Cease has already gone through the 32 start gauntlet looks stronger for it. Yeah. And he's looking fantastic. Jim and I will take a quick break, but coming up next, we look at the American League Central standings and the week ahead for all teams. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, let's take a look at the updated American League Central standings and the week ahead here for the week of August 8, 2022. Again, Not much has changed in the American League Central standings. Minnesota, Cleveland, and the White Sox all go 2-2 over the weekend. So the Twins are still two games ahead of the White Sox with a 57-51 record. Cleveland is a game back. They're 56-52, and the White Sox are 55-53. For this upcoming week, though, it is a bit interesting. The Twins only have five games, and they go to the West Coast. Specifically, they go to Los Angeles. They have two games at the Dodgers. So that's a good sign as a White Sox fan. Three games at the Angels. Not a great sign as a White Sox fan. Unless Shohei Otani is starting one of those games. The Guardians are also on the road. They head to Detroit for three games. And before you sigh, they did not play well in Detroit the last time they were there. And then after Detroit, the Guardians go across the border. They play three games against the Toronto Blue Jays. For the White Sox, four games at Kansas City, which we'll preview in a moment, and three games against the Detroit Tigers. The question that I have here, Jim, is that this is supposedly the easiest 19-game stretch of the season for the Chicago White Sox, and right now they're 7-5. Are they doing enough to take advantage of this opportunity? Uh, They aren't. Like I was thinking, like when it comes to this pace, I was thinking, like, Two out of three. So basically it would be like 13 and six thereabouts, you know, 
you know, because it doesn't break down evenly because 19 you can't isn't divisible by three, like 12 and seven, I guess. But I was thinking more like, you know, when it comes to just this whole softest schedule in baseball discussion we've been having and holding out hope for, like theoretically, if you're hovering around 500, uh, not taking advantage of softer stretches in the past and treading water against rougher uh, stretches, like this would be the time to uh, pad the standings a little bit. So yeah, I think they're behind. Yeah, because, I mean, realistically, I could see the Twins going 2-3 and three this upcoming week, which puts them at 59-54. and 54. The Guardians, let's say they win the series against Detroit. They win two out of three, but they lose the series against the Blue Jays because they're on the road. They could go 3-3 three and three this week, so that puts them at 59-55. and 55. That would move them a half game behind the Twins. And for the White Sox, these seven games against the bottom two teams in the division, teams that are not very good. If they go four and three, that puts them at 59 and 56, which is a game back of the Twins, even though there's a two-game difference, and a half game behind Cleveland. So four and three puts them in this 19-game stretch at 11 and eight, Jim. And I feel like even though it's 11 and eight over a 19-game stretch, that's not good enough when you look at the opponents of this 19-game stretch. I feel like they got to win at least five games this week, Jim. And if they could do that, then yes, finally, next Monday, the White Sox could be right there tied or in first place in the American League Central. And their reward is a four-game home series against the Houston Astros. Like, if you're going to move yourself into first place or be tied in first place, this is really it. Like, this is the week because after this week, you got a week of Houston and Cleveland. You have this really random one game in Kansas City. Then you got to travel to Baltimore. And that is now not going to be an easy series for the White Sox. So that's a tough two-week stretch. Like, if you're going to take advantage of this opportunity, this is the week to do so. Yeah, and looking at the standings, like, I think if this were a team that felt more random in his performances. Like they can show up and win three out of four in Houston, or they can, you know, uh, you know turn the tables on Baltimore. Like uh, if they showed an acumen for like rising to the occasion, then maybe it wouldn't matter so much, but they are uh, 23 and 32 against uh, below 500 teams. Like the guardians are 28 and 24. The twins are 30 and 33. So like the white Sox are distinctly uh, below 500, which is not necessarily bad i mean like it's it's kind of to be expected that like better teams would beat you than the worst teams beating you but it it does you know add a little bit of urgency to the proceedings like if you feel like you know looking at the shape of the rotation and thinking like michael kopech could be hitting a wall and like lucas giolito is barely getting by if you line up like your your back end of the rotation against like one of those better teams that we're talking about. And all of a sudden you're behind the eight ball in a position to lose two out of three or three out of four, get swept in a three game series. All of a sudden that like undoes, um, you know, the mild above 500 advantage you get from this 19 game stretch. So that's why I think, you know, we're only talking about two game difference between 11 and eight and, and, and 13 and six. And ordinarily that wouldn't matter, but just with how thin the margins have been, uh, whether it's pitching performances, whether it's offensive outputs, whether it's been like the injuries that have limited the lineup in their offensive output, like it, it does feel very fragile. I guess the good news, though, is, you know, probably the Twins and Guardians are having the exact same discussions. Yes. Yeah. Especially, you know, for Cleveland, this is a big series against Detroit. Like you did not play well in Detroit 
last time you were there. You got to win this series, and then you got to try to hold your own again against the Blue Jays. The Twins, I mean, good Lord. I don't know if you've been watching the Dodgers as of late, Jim. It doesn't matter who is in their path. They are destroying every team that's in their path. San Diego, poor San Diego. They get Juan Soto, and they get Josh Bell and Josh Hader. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter as the Dodgers are just crushing everyone in their path right now. And the Twins could lose those two games in Los Angeles. It does get easier when they go to Anaheim because the Angels are not very good. This is the part of the division race. Even though it's a mediocre division, this is what makes it fun. Uh, and it also makes it incredibly stressful. So in these seven games for the White Sox, I don't think four and three is good enough. I, I need to see them go five and two this upcoming week, win both series against Kansas City and Detroit. But speaking of the Twins, a random baseball topic that I want to get your thoughts on, Jim, because I've watched this replay maybe a dozen times. In the Twins-Blue Jays game on Sunday, Gary Sanchez fielded a ball after a base hit with a runner coming to home, and he tags the runner out, blocks the plate, Originally called out, the Blue Jays challenge it, and New York says that Sanchez violated the rule, the Buster Posey rule. He was blocking home plate before he got the ball. His left foot was in front of home plate, and they called the Blue Jays runner safe, and that's the deciding run for the game, and the Twins lose. It's been years since the Buster Posey rule, and we've seen it go against the White Sox, and we've seen it favor the White Sox over the years. Do you still like this rule? I well, I mean, I do when it's implemented against the Twins to help them uh, lose a game. Like, love it, big <laughs> fan. Um, it does seem like the rule achieved its purpose of just breaking some habits, breaking some habits of catcher setting up, you know, right in front of the plate um, and, and, you know, forcing contact, uh, breaking the habit of runners looking for contact, even when the catcher is off the plates, you know, the, the, the slides home are a lot more artful. Uh, the catchers, you know, don't plant a leg. You know, we, it's been years since the devastating leg injuries and concussions that we've seen. So it seemed like the rule as clumsy as it was implemented and hard to, um, you know, really hard to draw distinct lines between, um, you know, out and out blocking the plate and accidentally blocking the plate or setting up to where the ball's being thrown. Like it's, it's really hard to define that in real time, but it did seem to break the habits of just, you know, brute force at home plate. And, and, you know, just, I, I think the game is better off for the lack of collisions. Like, you know, I do miss the occasional impact, but you know, I do like just the amount of uh, athleticism that goes in the slides at home. So I think the game is ultimately better off for it, but you know, having watched that play, it does seem, you know, it, it does seem like a correct interpretation of the rule as written, you know, by New York and, you know, Whit Merrifield's, you know, I think he did the correct thing by sliding directly into the plate. Uh, and, and when he saw no path there and, and Sanchez was set up, you know, with, you know, his feet were right in front of the plate. He did not have to run you know, lunge into the baseline to catch the ball. Like his feet were planted before the ball came in. And so like it was a fair implementation uh, of the rule, but I do wonder like if it has uh, served its purpose in terms of just getting everybody to change their habits on plays around home plate. And maybe it's something like, you know, as soon as you lift it, it goes back to the, you know, dangerous amounts of contact and, and runners hunting contact and just, 
you know, reverting to those animalistic instincts of, um, you know, kill or be killed at home plates. But uh, I wouldn't mind necessarily seeing like a, the order lifted just to see what happens. Um, but, you know, maybe just something that always has to be in place. And these are the weird outlier calls that help keep the game a little bit safer, especially, you know, just given uh, how sensitive everybody is to catcher concussions and, and um, you know, in other sports, watching concussions being a you know, major focus. Like if it's a way that, you know, Major League Baseball can just reduce a little bit of damage to probably the most dangerous position on the diamond, like it is probably worth keeping if this is how rare the call is made. Yeah, Rocco Baldelli did not like the call. Very angry during the game in his post-game conference. But it's something I think a lot of people around baseball are going to, on Monday, going to be talking about this rule. Mm-hmm. And, again, it, I think it has served its purpose. For Sanchez, technically, yes, the call is correct in New York. Your left foot is blocking the path to home plate. If your left foot is not there, then Sanchez did nothing wrong. I mean, as a catcher, all you can do now is stand out in front of home plate until you've got the ball that you can move across. I know it's incredibly difficult, especially when the game is on the line in that situation. Uh, But yeah, the Minnesota Twins community as far as their media fans not happy they are yeah. not happy about that call and and you know i appreciated baldelli's response and i'd want tony la Russa to respond the same way if the white Sox around that call because it is it is weird and you know it feels unjust to have like a victory or a chance of a victory like legislated away from you which is basically what this is like it's you know the you know, like like you know baldelli mentioned that someone in new york decided that it was worthy of being overturned that the umps on the field got it right and that is very weird to have a you know an order shipped out <laughs> come back and say look no the play didn't happen that way so i understand like you know the uh you know his reaction and it is uh you know defending your players because like it does you know put the you know with the way the rule was uh determined you know it does place the fault on sanchez so it is standing up for his player by saying like you know it's a bang bang play like sanchez wasn't dropping a knee in front of home plate it wasn't you know it was just he was tracking the ball and his foot happened to be in front of home plate. And, and, you know, you don't, if, uh, you know, Sanchez is technically the reason why they lost the game and you want to take the heat off him. Like it, it, it's worthy of a expletive laden explosion. We did get this question from one of our Patreon supporters from chef Eric and chef Eric wrote to us, Jim, what's your prediction for how the American league central is going to shape up. And he added, I, Think he'll be going down to the wire and the White Sox chances rest on the Padre series. Is this supposed to be poetic? <laughs> oh yeah, that's you know the the way though the franchise fortunes have kind of dovetailed here and there. Like it it is fitting if it comes down to like who's whose solutions over the past, you know, however many years since the James Shields trade uh, paid off more over the final week, especially the Padres have just as much to play for as the White Sox do. Like, yeah, there is um, there's a whole lot of narrative to mine there. Um, I still, you know, I, I think it's going to be like a three-team mess for the next two months, but I still like the Guardians more than the Twins. I don't know how you feel, but having seen the Guardians limit the Astros to one run over two games, um, they have the pitching to get it done, especially with the White Sox, you know, right-handed pitching. They have the pitching just to sweep a series at a at a, at a key time that <laughs> basically, um, you know, ruins the White Sox chances. So I consider them to be the more dangerous team, at least to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And the way that they've been playing, 
especially against the White Sox and Twins. I still feel like the Guardians are the one that I, I'm more concerned about. I think the White Sox are going to catch the Twins. But it's the Guardians that the White Sox have to figure out how to overcome them. And I'm like hoping that they play so poorly against teams outside the American League Central that they get dug themselves a hole by other teams and that that lifts the White Sox ahead of them. Like that's that's my hope. I was hoping the Astros would win three out of four or sweep the Guardians so the White Sox are in second place. I did not get that dream. It was looking good after the first two games. But yeah, Chef Eric right now, I'm with Jim. If I had to handicap it, I still feel like Cleveland could win the American League Central out of these three teams, but it is going to be a tight race for the rest of the 2022 season. And they DFA'd Fran Miel Reyes too. So they mean business. Like they are, they are jettisoning the dead weight. Yes. And they are going to their young and very exciting prospects instead of the trade deadline. So let's see on how these new faces work out for the Cleveland guardians for the white Sox. We've been touching on this series, but they will be playing against the Kansas city Royals. And this is the quick series preview as the White Sox and Royals just played last week. Kansas City won their last two games against the Boston Red Sox, who are playing terrible baseball. The Royals are 44-65. and 65. The season series right now, the edge goes to the White Sox. The White Sox are 6-5 and five against the Kansas City Royals. Your pitching probables. Remember, Tuesday is a doubleheader. Game 1 starts at 3.10 p.m. Central Time. That will be Lance Lynn making that start for the White Sox. Tuesday night, Game 2... They are projected for that game to start at 6.40 p.m. Central Time. It is dependent on how long Game 1 goes, but that's also going to be a watch party. So thank you to all those that joined us in the watch party Friday night. We'll be hosting another watch party Tuesday night for Game 2 of the doubleheader with our friends from the 108. The Dart, Davis Martin, is the projected starter for the Chicago White Sox in Game 2. Wednesday night, it is Johnny Cueto for the White Sox against Chris Bubich. And Thursday afternoon, getaway day, it'll be Dylan Cease against Zach Greinke. And we already talked about this 19-game stretch and what we're hoping that the White Sox do as far as in this series. And Jim, you know, again, Salvador Perez is crushing the baseball as of late. So I, I feel like if the White Sox can do as well as they did at home against Salvador Perez... I don't think Kansas City offensively can hurt them, even though Davis Martin is starting game two, and he has thrown well against Kansas City in the past. I'm just hoping that with Lance Lynn and Johnny Cueto and Dylan Cease, if Lance Lynn can continue throwing the way that he has been, uh, especially as he did against Texas, that Lynn, Cueto, and Cease are enough to keep the Royals at bay, that if the sputtering White Sox offense continues, it's enough to win three out of four. Yeah, I think the Royals in their current shape with so many of their prospects coming up, you know, when you're talking about like uh, Melendez and, and you know, Pascontino and, and Prado and then, you know, playing alongside Bobby Wood, who's been there. But they're, they feel like a team that's going to look vastly different week to week based on how they're playing, based on just, you know, we saw it with Bobby Witt, like he had a sloppy series coming off the injury. Um, you could see like a... Quite a bit of, I think, um, you know, oscillation in their performances from being decent and precocious and interesting to uh, being overwhelmed. And so, yeah, you hope that like somebody like Dylan Cease can 
humble them and, and uh, you know, negate some of the progress they've been making. But uh, yeah, I think that that Bubich start is interesting because he's been pitching better for the Royals as of late. And the White Sox have been kind of sneaky bad against left-handed pitching as of late. Like the, you know, they haven't been hammering it the way they have. So, uh, you know, we, we are waiting to see like just exactly how the Royals unfold their, you know, double header plans. But I think, you know, the Bubich start, you know, might have something to say uh, about how the White Sox, you know, how watchable they're going to be over the course of the next two months, because, you know, it's one thing for them not to hit right-handed pitching because we know they're a right-handed heavy lineup that can put the ball on the ground too often against, you know, guys who can locate a slider. But if they're not hitting lefties the way they did before, or not even like in an above average rate, um, that, that's, that gets trickier. Yes, it does get trickier. And again, we'll recap this series in the next Sox Machine podcast, which we'll record that Thursday night after the four-game series against Kansas City and preview the upcoming series against the Detroit Tigers. And, of course, we'll have the White Sox wake-up calls as well, recapping Tuesday's doubleheader and Wednesday's action as well, as those are episodes you can look forward to from Sox Machine this upcoming week. All right. You guys had questions for us from our Patreon supporters, and we're going to answer them next in P.O. Sox. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where our Patreon supporters take over. They're the ones with the topics and questions. As if you would like to submit a question or topic in P.O. Sox for a future episode of the Sox Machine Podcast, you can sign up to become one of our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash Machine. And Jim, the first Patreon question that we have comes from Andrew Siegel. And Andrew's asking about Oscar Colas. And he wrote to us, has Oscar Colas played well enough to warrant a late season promotion to Chicago? Does the 40-man roster logjam make that less likely? Uh, I, I don't think so. Um, he's played well. I mean, like, I think he's done just about everything that you'd hope that he could do in his first season, especially given the long layoff, like he last played competitively in 2019. So, um, you know, there is, uh, you know, you look at the line, I'm looking at his line right now, 317, 381, 513 for his triple slash line, uh, 1084 OPS in Charlotte. So the numbers are there. Uh, you know, he's drawn enough walks, you know, the, the ball is flying out of the park. So, it's looking good. Um, just when you look at the the White Sox outfield and you look at like the way, you know, AJ Pollock has been up and down. And you look at Andrew Vaughn getting a little bit better. Like Gavin Sheets has been okay. Like the guys they're mixing in, like they're, none of them, or I should say like when it comes to Vaughn and Sheets, they're not outfielders and Coloss can play the uh, outfield better than either of them. Like, yeah, I think you can probably play it better than Pollock too, but I think, you know, Major League Park's first time reading uh, major league batted balls and new stadiums game action that you wouldn't count on him being like an above average outfielder right away. I just don't see uh, the payoff being likely for a two level jump for him to produce in a meaningful way uh, beyond what Sheets and Vaughn and Pollock are in, and then you throw in Jimenez too are already doing. And then you throw in the fact that after the season, like Jose Rodriguez will be eligible for Rule Five protection, and uh, Brian Ramos is there, uh, Yolbert Sanchez, Carlos Perez, like you know, all these guys are going to have to be protected, or at least in most cases will be protected. Um, you know, they they bypassed doing it for uh, Perez before, but if uh, you know Reese McGuire is gone and they need a third catcher, like. Uh, you know, it would seem like they'd be uh, 
inspired to protect Perez. So it would just seem like, you know, you'd be adding uh, Colas to the 40-man roster years before you have to when you have more urgent decisions. And I don't think the payoff is quite there. Now, if there were like, happened to be like a collision that knocked out two outfielders and all of a sudden you're down to like Adam Engel <laughs> and, you know, uh, Aloy Jimenez who can't play every day and Gavin Sheets, then maybe, you know, maybe that's the kind of emergency that presses him into action. But as long as everybody is healthy and functional enough to have like good series and decent stretches. Like I don't see the payoff being there for uh Colas coming up. That would feel a little bit desperate. And I wouldn't want to, you know, watching like Lenin Sosa come up and uh, struggle a little bit and then go to Charlotte and need time to figure that level out. Like, you know, Romy Gonzalez too is recent proof. Like just seeing how he struggled after like the, the kind of impact he had in Birmingham and Charlotte last year. I think it's asking too much of somebody like Colas to come up and outproduce guys who are, not great, but at least, you know, major league hitters of some kind. Yeah, Andrew, I think your question is a year early. From my perspective, I think Coloss maybe in the second half of 2023 gets on my radar as a realistic solution for the White Sox in right field. If they're still experiencing struggles in right field, they don't address the position during this upcoming offseason. And he continues to hit like he has been in Birmingham. And I'm going to assume that he may start next year in Charlotte. He he is certainly rising through the farm system. And he's playing well to start taking him seriously as part of a, maybe a future Chicago White Sox team. I just, I just think your question is a year early, Andrew. But thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Joe. And Joe wrote to us, Jim, if the White Sox had the ability to get out of the Yaz, uh, so the Yasmati Grandal or Yoan Makata's contract going into next year, who would you choose? That's a good question. Like I, I at first, you know, I thought like, oh, Mankata because he's owed like forty-two million plus a five million dollar buyout, you know, for the next two seasons and then afterward. Um, and given the way he's playing, like, you know, God, run from that. But then I thought like, well, Grandal, like, yeah. I, I, then I looked at like who's you know eligible to replace you know these guys like whether a free agent market or internally and like Grandal, like there are a few different options for replacing them like they could depending on how Sebi Zavala finishes the season and sure enough like right after uh you know we talk about whether Zavala should be the frontline catcher he goes over five with four strikeouts batting ninth and and you know I wrote about that too saying like it's a little bit of risk that Zavala just might have opened a new hole that teams have to figure out and he could be overexposed in short time and uh yeah Sure enough, like he, you know, validates that fear a little bit. But, you know, if if he doesn't collapse over the course of the next two months, and if Carlos Perez looks like somebody who can, you know, catch and throw and, uh, you know, hit 270, uh, and then you hope that the receiving improves, like, you know, that could maybe work as like an, you know, incumbent option. And then, you know, in the free agent ranks, you have Omar Narvaez and you have Christian Vasquez and like Wilson Contreras. So you have a couple, a few proven like number one catchers on the market, like, yeah. Whereas third base, like there's really no good options at third base. Uh, it becomes more tempting to say, well, you know, I, I don't really want to go with Jake Berger as a full-time third baseman, uh, both defensively and the fact that, you know, he still gets banged up quite a bit and, uh, you know, can't quite, you know, I think hold down a full-time job at that position. Uh, and there are no free agent options and it just, it's a little bit messy. Like, yeah, I don't know. I think, I still think I'd get out from underground, uh, you know, Mankata just because that's two off seasons of spending versus one. Uh, but 
there is an argument, I think, for holding on to Moncada and hope that his value improves enough to flip him in like a, you know, not necessarily like fooling a team into buying on a, like a hot streak, but, you know, maybe somebody else's, you know, extra player or change of scenery candidate, like kind of like the another Pollock Kimbrell trade to where uh, it's just an exchange of somebody's excess. Uh, Joe, I really like the question. I'm with I'm with Jim. Like, I think I would try to get out of Yasmani Grandal's contract. Well, I said like I I, I picked Moncada, but ultimately like I I could see the argument for Grandal. Like yeah, at first I thought it was a no brainer Moncada, but then I thought about it a bit more and I had to wrestle with it. So I did pick Moncada though. Yeah. I, I, okay, then I'm going against Jim here, Joe. I'm, I'll pick Yasmani Grandal with the hope that age is on Makata's side here and he he. Busts out in 2023. Uh, I'm I'm concerned. There's just a lot going against Yasmani mm-hmm. Grandal, age regression, injury history. Like save that money, spend it elsewhere. I think you'd be okay with Carlos Perez and maybe maybe Sevi Zavala, or you could sign a, a cheapish defensive centric catcher right now because Yasmani Grandal defensively is not solid at the moment this season and offensively he's really struggling so it's a lot of money to Yasmani Grandal but this is the worst year of his career uh, so maybe this is the outlier and he bounces back but it's a great question Joe and, and something to definitely think about Next question comes from Rob, and Rob wrote to us, who is your candidate to pick the offense up for the stretch run, whether you're betting a stake on it or not? I like your thinking, Rob. So, Jim, who is your candidate? <laughs> I, I think we talked about it before, you know, to circle back to our previous discussion, but the way you know, Aloy is hitting the ball, like it's not a dark horse candidate. I look for you know a dark horse candidate, somebody who would make me look really smart if it happened, but I don't have like any, uh, you know, you know any faith in like AJ Pollock, you know, having the Chevy Beretta run that uh, you were hoping for to get to 108. Like, I think he'll be okay, but I don't think he'll carry a team. You know, I don't want to put it all in Andrew Vaughn. Uh, Tim Anderson, we talked about, like, I think he's playing through something or, or um, you know, trying to protect something that's, uh, you know, ailing him. And, you know, in Mancata, just I don't trust the bat speed. So I, I think it comes down to obvious choices. And, and I think among the obvious choices, uh, we're already seeing a Bray. So Bray doesn't count because he's already doing it. And it's not, you know, right. there, I, I think I'm treating it as the guy who supplements the Bray. And I think, you know, Jimenez is going to be the guy who does it. I'm going to go with Luis Robert. Yeah, so we're going the with the, the ones that are the yeah. other obvious choice. Uh, I think that's what we've got. Rob is just the, the obvious ones are going to have to continue playing at the level that they're playing. And if they can reach another level, fa- fantastic out of the not obvious, who do I have confidence in that can maybe spark a run? Hmm. I don't know. I That's sad. I, I don't know who I have confidence in. Maybe Tim Anderson. Maybe us calling out Tim Anderson this episode, Jim, will get to his ears, and he wants to quiet the haters again, and maybe he catches on fire. Because we know that he can hit at a high level. He has hit at a high level. It's just one of these bizarre things that in the last 41 games he's been a poor hitter. So out of the out of the struggling ones, Rob, I'll go with Tim Anderson to turn his season around. The struggling hitters, who do you think could turn it around in the the final couple months? Uh yeah, I think I might go with Moncada, but that would just be like a blind faith thing. Like yeah. just he, he's gotten <laughs> he's had moments uh, in stretches and weeks and 
Fortnite's <laughs> season where it looked like he was finally uh, getting past it. And so you just have to kind of close your eyes and hope that uh, September he has one of those stretches again. But nothing's telling me uh, it's Makata, just more like nothing's telling me anybody is going to break out. Um, you know, maybe AJ Pollock would be the other one just because he's, you know, with the Dodgers, he got hot. Like, you know, he, he had these stretches where all of a sudden, like, you know, he's a luxury that they weren't counting on. And now he just makes the Dodgers that much more dangerous. Uh, maybe it's all uh, leading up to this, but um, yeah, I think Anderson's just too banged up for me to trust him the rest of the year. Whereas like Pollock is, is healthy. So, you know, maybe I'll amend my answer to Pollock of the dark horses, but they're all, they're all blind faith. Just like, eh, let's see if the long shot comes in. Yeah. Pollock's already burned me once. I'm not going down that road. Yeah. It's my turn. <laughs> Rob, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions and topics this week for our Patreon supporters. Again, if you have a question or topic that you would like Jim and I to address in a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where our Patreon supporters, they get more. They get exclusive content like bonus P.O. Socks questions that we answer on every podcast uh, that we have P.O. Socks. They also get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website. And when we have new Socks Machine swag, they're the first ones to get it. Things are in the mix. Things are working right now. The gears are in movement on new swag. So, again, if you are in, if you like our work and you want more from us or you just want to help support Socks Machine, sign up at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. Monthly plans start at $2, and you can save with an annual subscription. That will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. A reminder, Tuesday night, game two of the doubleheader between the Chicago White Sox and Kansas City Royals will be another watch party that Jim and I will be hosting along with our friends from the 108. So we hope that you join us. It's a fun time. The link will be available on SoxMachine.com. And uh, again, we'll have that stream getting started around 630 Tuesday night to get ready for game two of the doubleheader. If you just discovered the Socks Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts such as Apple, Music, and Spotify. And the Socks Machine podcast is a production of SocksMachine.com. You're home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.